0: wondering if anybody had any questions that they wanted to ask. Maybe things that are in the handout that we didn't talk about, or actually just anything. Yes? This might seem off-topic, but some people had a question about your name, so could you talk a little bit about the history of your Dharma name? Oh, okay, yeah. Dasa. It, it's an unusual name. Chula means uh, little, smaller, lesser, and dasa means servant. So you could uh, you could translate Chula Dasa as being the lesser servant or the humble servant or something like that. And how it came about was many years ago. When I was uh, uh, planning to take ordination as a dedicated lay practitioner, and oh, we were talking about potential names and things like that, my teacher at the time, Jodi Dama, was—he yeah, was—he was teasing me really uh, about about being, you know, rather arrogant and things like that. He said. <laughs> We should call you Chuladasa. Oh, yeah? what's that
1: mean?
0: He says, Well, it means humble servant, although it could mean a little service, too. <laughs> you know, and uh, he was teasing me and everything. But then later on, when uh, it came time to do the ordination, and the teacher who did the ordination came on that. Uh, said, "Well, should we choose a name for it?" I said, "Actually, I want to use the one that, that Jody uh So I, I kept that name. I thought it was a really good, a good name and a good reminder. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. Uh, to you know, uh, I, together with that, one of the things that I really like there is something that's called the uh, the eight practices for training the mind uh, in Tibetan tradition. And one of those is that uh, in every gathering, I shall regard myself as the least important person. And uh, you know, not that I necessarily always succeed. But I think that between that name and and that particular practice, it it, uh, it does help me to keep in mind the tendencies that I have to be arrogant. Trying to keep them somewhat under control. <laughs> so that's the story behind my name. Uh, Dharma names are uh, commonly administered when somebody takes. Uh, in, in the Buddhist tradition, a person becomes, basically becomes a Buddhist when they take their refuges and five precepts. And then, uh, within the monastic part of Buddhist tradition, a person, when they become a novice, takes ten precepts, and then later on, when they take full ordination, they undertake to live according to uh, the rules of the vinaya, which there's 240 something rules that they have to keep. But uh, also in the Buddhist tradition, since the time of the Buddha, has been that uh, uh, the dedicated lay practitioner, the upasaka. That's what upasaka means, uh, dedicated lay practitioner. Actually, uh, its literal meaning is one who sits close, one who sits close to the teacher. And so uh, usually, When somebody takes an Upasika ordination or a novice ordination, they'll be given a a dharma name, but it's from from the Pali, or in the Mahayana tradition it would be from uh, a Sanskrit name. So that's how I came to have this name, and that's how I came to have that particular name. Yeah, people often don't know how to pronounce it, C in Pali is pronounced like C-H in English. So that's Chula Dasa.
2: I need help with something. Yes, okay, (laughs) great. (laughs) Um, And it's been sort of nagging in my mind, um, one of those processes that uh, Impedes my joy uh, oh. somewhat, and it has to do with what you've said. Um, I think it's the word and the concept of perfection, and I I totally agree with the um, the practice of um, loving what is, accepting what is, and it seems like pretty much within what I call myself, you know, my inner life and focus and introspection, that I don't get tripped up a lot on that. But for example, in the past, I've um, and currently too, I do metta practices and compassion practices where I direct energy to suffering in the world. And In the past, I worked in prison settings. I worked with children who um, were sexually abused. Um, I've been involved with some organizations that um, deal with abortion and the international uh, sex trade, for example. And today, someone brought up the example of uh, during the Holocaust. And I really have a, a, a wall that comes up when any part of me tries to say that that represents some type of perfection. And, and I know it's not condoning it. I mean, I know you can see that as what is and, you know, an intention to work to make things better in the world. So I don't know if it's just something I should ignore, that the perfection part of that is bothering me. And maybe I'm thinking, well, as I go along the path and as I become more in-depth, maybe that won't bother me. Or if you think it's something I should uh, take a deeper look at, and if so, how can I do that?
0: I would suggest that you keep working with that. <clears throat> and you, know, you- You accept the the fact that you can't accept some things right now, but you keep working with it. Uh,
2: I mean, I accept the reality of them, and I accept that maybe there are things I don't understand and don't know about it, like you said earlier, the situations. It's just that word, perfection, and applying it in that Mm -hmm. way that really just something.
0: Well, on the one hand don't let a particular word stand in your way but on the other hand applying that word to it is bringing you face to face with a part of you that's not quite willing to go that far Absolutely That's right and it's it's good to be aware of that so remain aware of that and, and keep, keep working with it and uh, it's not an easy thing to do, and it's not as though everybody else in the room is fine with accepting child sex trade and Holocaust and everything as being perfect. And it's just wanted that has a problem. because <laughs> I don't think that's true at all. Because we all, we all are learning to be in a place of acceptance of has, But we all keep coming up against those places where we're not quite ready to go that far. It's, it's a difficult place to to that that's still for us we're not ready we're not ready to make that degree of, of surrender. So all I can do is point out to you once again that As you said, you don't, you know that you really don't know enough. You don't have the degree of omniscience, you don't have the degree of wisdom to really evaluate these things. You know that. And I don't know what kind of belief systems that your mind naturally resorts to. For some, the question is, if there is a God, and if that God is just and merciful, why do these things exist? And so for them, the, the challenge there is to is to still believe in uh, a just and merciful God, and they see that, that there are these things and have been these things and continue things. Whatever whatever form it is, though, you're taking your understanding and your view and you're pitting it against what is. And the fact is that as long as you do that, it's going to create a feeling of suffering in you whenever you do that. Um, is that not true?
2: I'm not, I'm not so sure about that. I, I guess if, maybe it's a thing of language. Maybe. I, 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 there's just a part of me that bothers mm-hmm. putting the word perfection with anything oh. that I perceive mm-hmm. to be an atrocity. Right. I guess that's the bottom line. Mm-hmm. And if it's just a linguistic thing, I can let go of that. But I've been listening to your teaching for a long time, and nothing that you've ever said has elicited this within me,
0: but mm-hmm. that did. But that that word. Okay, well. I just said, how can he say that? <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know how I can say that. It. It's just the. Some, some part of my mind, some place that I've come to, has given up trying to judge that. I mean, there's other things a lot less atrocious than that that my mind hasn't given up trying to judge. <laughs> Maybe because I've spent a little more time on, on things like that. But my mind is willing to entertain the possibility that things really are perfect as they are and that this is a process and it's not yet complete and uh, the only part of this process that I can work with is my part so my part My part of the process does the best it can. Your part of the process is doing the best it can to see that things change in ways like that. And um, I just, I've given up a lot of the questioning that I used to have. And maybe it's just because it didn't get me anywhere. No, no matter how much I question why things are the way they are, I don't get an answer that leaves me with, ah, okay, I see, that's the reason, okay. You know, I'm just, I keep left being left with the mystery. Maybe that's the way to put it. I'm willing to accept that it's a mystery know that it doesn't do me any bit to defy it. So it's part of the mystery of what is that there are these things that appear so bad. One of the things I do know, and maybe this is a big part of it, is that the compassion that I feel for any suffering is also combined with the awareness that that suffering is not real. That's a hard one. What do you mean it's not real? It feels real. My suffering feels real to me. Your suffering feels real to you. And I know your suffering feels real to you. And my compassion arises out of the knowledge that your suffering feels as real to you as it does to me. And my compassion wants to stop that suffering but I know that the only real end to that suffering is for you and anybody else's suffering to let go of what's going on in the mind that causes that suffering to be.
2: I'm thinking, um, I'm not exactly sure of the quote, that. I think once the Dalai Lama said that um, that some of the suffering and some of the what I'm calling atrocities in the world is that's to open us to compassion. That if yeah. if we didn't have those type of things, that we would probably be pretty complacent and that we wouldn't get in touch with them. And and
0: that's, that's one of the ways that we can look at these things in a positive way. It's one of these ways... Basically what that is doing is saying, although this seems terrible to me, it may be doing something really good and really important. It may be that the purpose of suffering is to awaken us to compassion. It does have that effect. Our own suffering arouses us to compassion for other people's suffering. So... It does serve that good purpose. It may be that our own suffering is what is necessary to achieve a higher sense of, the higher consciousness that liberates us from suffering. You know. Maybe that's the only way that we can become what we need to be. I'm not, I'm not offering that to you as the answer I'm saying that it's really coming a place of I don't know but I know that I don't know and somewhere deep down I found that trust and trust and love can help me to let go of that kind of judgment and to be in the place of not knowing. Maybe maybe when you and I become fully awakened Buddhas it will all be obvious and we'll know the answers and things like that. But in the meantime we have to open up our heart to what is and do the best that we can. And, you know, uh, there is no end to this path, but as this path goes on, the, the space of not knowing and of being all right with not knowing is part of what expands. You know, uh, when, when knowledge and understanding is this big, then the boundary between knowledge and what you don't know is only that big around. Mm -hmm. When knowledge and understanding is this big, then you know there's a whole lot more you don't understand. Mm -hmm. And so, that's what I mean. The the space of unknowing is growing. Mm -hmm. But, part of what, part of my own personal growth is being alright with that not knowing, and replacing. You know, for years I was at war with God. I was fed up with God. How, you know? I thought, you looked at I I, 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 what I had gone through in my life, and what happened to me, and what happened to other people around me, and what was happening in this whole world. You know, if there was a God. What a total jerk! But that was that was something that I had to get past. It's about all I can offer you. <laughs> yes.
3: I wonder if the word perfection in Sanskrit or Pali has a different meaning because we talked earlier about empty, empty of self and people. We didn't understand really very yeah. well and you said this too it's a very poor translation so that yeah. would help and the other thing i have uh, connected with that if we really accept this in the world as perfect as it is in this word meaning where would come where would active buddhism come in to want to change and to be involved
0: mm-hmm. in the change and it's perfect you don't have to do it. Well, that's, that's for certain. You know, We don't want to get a place of being stopped dead in the water because everything's okay. <laughs> so so we, need, we need a sense of, uh, uh, we, we need that ongoing sense that, you know, uh, and we need it side by side. You need to be able to accept what it is and be totally devoted to changing what needs to be changed at the same time. And that has to also be side by side with having no attachment to the outcome of what you do. The only thing you can do is the best that you can. You can't. You can't know what the outcome is going to be. And uh, it's just going to be what it is. But that's a very good point. Paramita is the uh, word that means perfection. And. I'm trying to trying to remember what Mita means. Para means uh, beyond. mystery. Yeah. I'll, I'll look into the uh, etymology of the word that we translate as perfection. See if it has any illuminating clues that we can use. But it's beyond something.
1: Yes. Well, um, it's more an observation rather than a question. And, you know, it might be stating the obvious in this group of people. Nevertheless, you know, it strikes me every time I realize that, that, you know, the the more you're looking for something, the easier it is to find it. Yes. And I'm talking about the practice of, of meditation and, and looking for, for joy in particular. Um, yeah, I have never been a consistent meditator, but even though I've been doing meditation for, for, for a while. And you know, I made all sorts of choices not to be consistent. Um, but I, I realized how powerful consistency can be. Um, it's been a lot of stress in my life recently, and um, a week ago I would not be, uh, I wouldn't be able to imagine that I can meditate for thirty minutes, because I would be so easily distracted. Yeah. And it's amazing how quickly I could make these stressors a faint buzz of traffic, uh, and I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, But at the same time I I realize that there is a trap, Um, what I mean by that is if you achieve relatively quick results, I'm not saying that I I could easily put myself in the state of joy, Mm -hmm. but certainly my internal state is different than it was a week ago. But the trap is that uh, you know sometimes you think that by doing something more, you know, you will obtain more results. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not saying about being consistent. It's just mm-hmm. you know your temptation to do more and having expectations that by doing something more mm-hmm. or longer or for a significant, more significant period of time, mm-hmm. you know you will get there quicker.
0: Yes. Mm -hmm. You can definitely create that kind of expectation. And that expectation will get in your way. Uh, And it varies a lot how much it gets in your way. Uh, More consistency in practice pretty well always helps. You do... You know, your practice will improve the more consistent you are and the more practice you do. Where the expectation becomes a problem is if uh, the expectation becomes too great and the the more judgments that's involved in it, then you're going to turn what is otherwise a motivation to do more practice, to try harder, so forth, into you, you can very easily... Turn it into something that becomes a, an obstacle. Your expectations become unrealistic. They become self-defeating. Is that what you're referring yeah. to there? Yeah. Right. So I agree with that. I agree with that comment very much. It's certainly true. Uh, and of course, the other danger is that, that you say, "Oh well, if uh, you know, if I." If I keep pushing myself and try too hard, that's not really going to help either. And then you don't do as much as you could. And, you know, life is short. And uh, totally uh, uh, unexpected what's going to happen. You don't know. You you have no idea what the future holds. So to develop any sort of uh, lackadaisical attitude is just simply to resign yourself to continuing where you are you know so you need to be motivated to do something you need to take action you need to you need to somehow or another generate that, that drive and that motivation that makes you practice more that makes you practice better that makes you study that makes you do these things that's great. But you need to also keep in mind that you can turn it into exactly the same kind of treadmill and rat race that everything else in life so easily becomes. And that's not going to help. And in that case, if that happens, you're putting in time and going nowhere. Or at least not going anywhere you think you were going to go in that time. Yeah. But a lot of this is... is Loving yourself, being easy on yourself, well, you know, keep challenging yourself. Don't stop challenging yourself. But always challenge yourself at a level that you're capable of, of doing. So. That's where you find that inner balance.
1: Per se, it's very challenging. Yeah. The right? And per se, it's very challenging to, to strike this balance. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah.
0: I think maybe we should put the cooler on high. Thank you very much. Either that or we should all just take <laughs> <laughs> So, Anything else? Yes?
3: It seems to me that about anything that we could bring up, whether it's hiring or firing or sexually abused children, anything, doesn't matter, that it it, 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 it boils down, and then this would be another workshop, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it boils down to the true nature of phenomena, of the no-self, mm-hmm. of the arising and falling away of phenomena as it comes out of that suchness that you speak of so often to us. That that the joy and the compassion, um, its true roots I've been thinking about today, Mm -hmm. comes from the immense beauty. And that word is not at all adequate. But like bubbles arising from the sea, that dependent origination, that attachment to all things, that the that the arising of each phenomena, be it an abused child, be it anything, is so connected to the vastness that there is an incredible beauty to that. And it seems so obtuse at first. So uh, one could have a lot of attachments, Mm -hmm. native attachments to things like that. And indeed there are. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, this incredible vastness out of which each being and phenomena arises is, in fact, the most amazing and beautiful thing.
0: It is, exactly. And it
3: seems like any discussion of joy, pita sukha, dukkha, all the rest of it, <laughs> it's, It, it, it it's, fu- its foundation is that. But that is another workshop, isn't
0: it? Well, yeah. A well, whole bunch more, child. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
3: one other thing, and yes. the pro- where I have a problem, and I'm not quite sure where it's attached, is when I hear so very often in conversations, and people say they'll sort of, in a kind of offhanded and maybe blasé way, say, "Oh, it was just meant to be," mm-hmm. and. Every time I hear someone say that, something in me goes, ooh. Because maybe if you think about dependent origination, that it was maybe really meant to be, but I think that that's a little, it's a little shallow, that saying.
0: It it, it certainly can be. That that phrase could be can be often is very shallow, but also can be very profound. Mm. Yeah. So it's, it's what's behind it, and you can't know the mind of another person, mm-hmm. so you can't really know whether it's profound or shallow. Actually, all you'll know is what your mind projects, and if it's shallow, then that's where you are. <laughs> And it's good to keep that in mind. Yeah, if you can... If you can step outside of this body and mind and just see it as part of the whole, uh, become a spectator to your own story. You know, uh, the curious, interested... A um, spectator—it totally changes your perceptions of things. And if you do the same thing for, you know, if you see this body and mind as a part of the whole, and your what you are able to see is only a small part of what it is. And so, the story that unfolds is the story that you're telling yourself, or. Well, even that, the story that unfolds to consciousness from your perspective is just simply the story that's available from that perspective. Your mind, your body, and your your the role that that mind and body played in the whole creates one particular story out of the infinite number of stories that make up reality, and until you can know all of the stories, you can't really judge. So we want to get to we want to get to that place where we can have that kind of appreciation. So we work on ourselves because we start off the self that we think we are, the story that we think we are, and the story that we think is unfolding around us. And that's what we have to work with. And so what else is there to do? Your suffering is part of my story, ultimately. Ultimately, I can't really ever go beyond that i can't know your story from your side other than what is very interesting is that i know that if i were experiencing your story from your side it would seem exactly the same way as it does when i experience my story from my side mm-hmm. so in in that sense we're all ultimately the same. We we all share the same suffering, and we share the same joy, and we share the same awakening. So. We have to work with what we are, where we are. And it's wonderful. That's the thing. It's wonderful. It's wonderful that you're who you are. It's wonderful that you got the story you've got, and it may not be a really bland story. It may have some real drama in it, yeah, but that's what it is. That's 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 what we what we go with. And we're all a part of. That we are all in this together. So we get to we get to grow together and we get to teach each other in so many different ways. One aspect of joy that we didn't talk about yet is called sympathetic joy. That's the joy that you take in somebody else's joy, somebody else's well-being, somebody else's happiness. And we, well, we've talked about it, we're talking about it right now, but we, we didn't go into it specifically before. But this is one, this is one very important source of joy. You want, to, you want to become a mind that experiences joy. And one very powerful uh, route that you can take to, to get there is through the shared joy, sharing in the joy of others contributing to the joy of others. But even when you don't contribute, just sharing in it. And you know, one of the amazing things is that so often we miss the chance, because when somebody else has joy, we get into some kind of selfish place of jealousy or envy or something like that, instead of opening ourselves up to let that, let that other person's joy enrich us and fulfill us. That's one of the things about making love. All those words mean so many different things. But there's one aspect of making love, which is that the joy and pleasure and happiness that you can elicit... And another person is the joy that you experience. Is that's your satisfaction, and so you know, carry that out into everything you do in the world. You know, make love with everyone. <laughs> Sixties are back.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Sixties are back. <laughs> <laughs>